You're listening to Simmering Thoughts, where we serve up slow-cooked thinking on Christian life and theology. I'm your host, Ryan Akers. In this episode, we continue our series on anthropology. Today, I'm joined by Casey Holinchik, who is a pastor in California. We're discussing man being created to be in community. And this is just the first part of the conversation. Stay tuned to Simmering Thoughts to hear part two coming next week. You have just enough time to grab your Bible, grab your favorite beverage, and grab your favorite seat as we serve up slow-cooked thinking on Christian life and theology. Welcome back to Simmering Thoughts. My name is Ryan Akers, and I am the host of this program. Tonight, we're going to be looking at corporate relationships, how it is that groups of humans relate to each other in a variety of different contexts, both uh, within the church and also outside of the church and the community and the family, a variety of other places. Uh, Who knows where we'll end up going? That's our current plan. As you know, we sometimes find a tangent or two and go chasing it. And to help us go chasing those tangents tonight, I do have a guest host. Uh, He's joining me. I believe it is from the state of California. His name is Casey Holenchik. I think I pronounced it right as well. And uh, he is, again, one of the folks that I have gotten to know on Twitter. Uh, We've spent quite a few days uh, having long conversations, uh, hit or miss kind of through the day because of the time difference, uh, through private message and also on the timeline and they have been very edifying and and challenging conversations uh, at good depth. So I'm really looking forward to uh, digging into corporate relationships. Part of the reason I'm excited about that is because Casey is involved with uh, church revitalization and church planting and as a pastor. And so there's some unique uh, viewpoints that come from that and experiences. So I think that would be a really good place to start this conversation. So I want to bring Casey in right now, and he can introduce himself to us a little bit better. Uh, yes, hi, my name is Casey. Um, I am out in Bangor, California, and if you've never heard of Bangor, that's because it is a spot on the map at best. Um, I uh, serve with Village Missions. It's an organization that does partner with rural churches, um, that mostly do not have the means or the ability to uh, attract full-time pastors, bring those pastors into the community, and we serve as missionary pastors, uh, pastor to the flock and the shepherd, missionary to the community. Um, and that's, that's why we are here. Uh, I've been married to my wife, Hope, for 10 years now. Uh, we have six wonderful little blessings, uh, ranging from three months to nine uh, years old, and um, I'm looking forward to this conversation as well, uh, especially the the premise of the, the podcast and the subject matter itself. I'll tell you what, you are familiar with corporate bodies with that much of a family. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I, I uh, am an elementary school teacher, and so I would have most of those six in my classroom, and uh, that's those are always exciting. I enjoy teaching those families. You know, it's funny. We, we do homeschool, but we we tell the kids one of the reasons is, despite how close they are in age, if they went to a regular elementary school, they would all be in different gr- classes. Oh my! And that breaks their heart. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> that is uh, an interesting. It's interesting how all that works out uh, through the educational system and and how the ages get put into different grades, uh, and watching the the larger families as they navigate that. We have several. Uh, very large families in our school district. Uh, one, one in particular, it's kind of a, a running joke with the family. They have five, and the first two are boys, and the last two are boys, and the one in the middle is the girl. And uh, <laughs> she, she's a good sport. <laughs> but uh, it's it it is fun to watch that go through. So, uh, well, I do want to say welcome to the podcast. We're l- glad to have you here. Um, there is a whole lot to jump into. And I normally start with a nice, gentle question, um, which, you know, sometimes works and sometimes doesn't. Uh, in this case, I'm not sure there is a gentle question to jump into corporate bodies. And so I'm going to instead start with a little bit of a monologue and then uh, uh, toss a question your way. And good. Uh, so the 
the premise of this idea and the, the place we're starting from is looking at corporate groups, groups of humans that gather together for a variety of reasons. And of course, with this being a podcast about Christian life and theology, of course, we're going to talk about the church, but there's more to it than that. And I think, you know, with each of these episodes, as we've been looking at anthropology, <clears throat> we've started all the way back in Genesis with almost all of them and worked from there into the rest of the Bible and then out into more modern times. And so as we look at the Bible, we start with the first corporate bodies really being just families. Uh, and some of those don't last very long. You know, the in initial family kind of gets split up pretty quick and uh, ends up in a variety of different places. And as a result, there isn't a lot that's talked about that first family, especially Adam and Eve and their first two boys. There's not a lot of family description going on. But very quickly in the book of Genesis, we end up with family groupings becoming uh, major parts of the storyline. You have cities and nations and peoples, uh, and that is a bedrock of what the Old Testament starts with in terms of grouping people together. And, and eventually we end up with the nation of Israel or the people group of Israel as a corporate body, uh, certainly by the time that we get into Exodus and as we get out of Exodus, really, uh, and out of the law and, and start getting into Joshua, it's even more apparent as they become a political reality in the area. Uh, and so want to start with the idea of, of extended family, not really the, the, the uh, one generation or two generation family, uh, such as you and your, your children, but extend that out to maybe two or three or four generations and how the relationships work together um, you know, we've got different layers of closeness, even within that, you know, the, the, the really close family, father, mother, children is a, is a more tight packed group. And so how that relationship works is in some ways more flexible, but also more rigid in that there there's the outer shell and inside of that outer shell, everybody works pretty easily. But as you get out, extend beyond that generations or uh, a brother and sister that have moved apart and are now in different family groups, those relationships become a lot more elastic and uh, change a whole lot more quickly in terms of just interpersonal. We're not even at the spiritual level yet, but just interpersonally. Uh, and so I'm curious what your, your thoughts on that are through your experience and your reading as well um, of the importance of that corporate family bond before we even start getting into outside the family relationships. Yeah, you know, I, uh, I, I, I go back to family from the beginning. And of course, you know, we, we talk about what you were talking about. And we think of the first part being husband, wife, children. And of course, we go back to Genesis 2 and God institutes marriage there. But it's not very much long afterwards that we see extended family come in or generations, as you mentioned. Uh, the end of Genesis 4 and the beginning of Genesis 5, we see the line of Cain and we see the line of Seth, two very different lines. They, they were brothers, but we have no indication that they knew each other. You know, Seth came after the whole Cain and Abel thing. Mm -hmm. And we see how those two different lines developed over the course of multiple generations. And we, you know, it, I know genealogies aren't the funnest thing to read in the Bible, but I was They're just thinking about that. <laughs> We're hitting everybody's um, favorite part in the Bible right now. Right. Um, and, and I'm not saying that we have to spend a whole lot of time there, but right. even just glancing through there, um, and I do encourage us to look deeper than glancing, but yeah. even just glancing through, we see the difference of, of it starts with one, and it, and it does. There's a generational, um, I don't know what the word would be. I, I don't want to say generational sin. I don't want to go with that just uh, off the top of my head, but you can see the generations build on each other and you can see things being passed down from generation to generation and you can see the difference in that. Uh, and of course, then with, with those generations, we, we end up, you know, with Noah and all that issue. And then Abraham, where God starts and, and zooms into that one family. Uh, and we see nephews and uncles and, you know, wives and, and, and their maidens and, 
all the other things come in that way as well. Um, so I think that that Genesis, even if we don't, even if we aren't looking at just the immediate husband, wife, um, children, uh, Genesis provides at least a, a snapshot of some of these different family relationships, and and we we get to see the beginnings of them at, at the least, you know, as as they develop through the course of human history. You know, as you mentioned the uh, the genealogies, it it struck me that that's probably stopped more. Bible in a year reading plans than any other book in the Bible, except for maybe Leviticus. But, you know, those are the spots where you get hit and it's just like you get stuck in mud uh, or you skip through. There's been a lot of that skimmed. But, you know, you mentioned a great point in that, that as we think about that, we see family develop and we see the the relationship or the lack of relationship even uh, between one generation and the next. And we see the, the generational patterns that are handed down from one to the next in terms of uh, uh, predilections toward particular personalities and strengths even. Uh, you know, some some tribes are well known as uh, hunting tribes and others as, as field-tending tribes. Uh, you have some that are known for their warlike spirit and those, those kinds of personalities that continue on generation after generation, at least for a time. Uh, And of course, in scripture, it's not long before uh, faith starts to intervene and the lack of faith and sin start to tear those families apart and and rend them often uh, into different places. And it's it's also a major thing in the Old Testament that those are not just family groupings, but really civic uh, realities in terms of cities and countries and people groups as we see them now. Uh, that that all recognize themselves under someone's name. Uh, you know, you think about the nation of Israel and the the Jewish people, uh, the Judas the the Judas people. You know, that's what Jewish means, Judas people, right? You know, the Israelites. They're Israel's people, and you think you take that and you start to to pull that back, and there's a an identification and a. Um, an important bit of knowledge about yourself that you gain from knowing those things and looking back and seeing your lineage and being able to trace, you know, you think about all the ancestry uh, research that's done these days uh, and the importance of that to folks as they, especially as you get older, that takes on more and more um, of a sweetness almost uh, as we look back on it, because I guess I think some of that is that, that we don't deal with it when we're younger. There's not that training in, you know, going five or six generations back that used to be. Uh, but, but in that there's a knowledge of self that is gained that, that kind of grounds you in to your community where you are, whether it is your, your physical local community or whether that's your family community uh, that's spread out. Absolutely. And I, I, I see this just pouring off the page. It's, Anybody who knows um, or spent any time in a small town knows that there's still these aspects that you that you were just talking about alive oh, yeah. as well today. Yep, um, it's everybody is related to each other, and not in a weird, creepy way. Just <laughs> right, they just are. Every, everybody's still there. Yeah, well, I, I, there's several families around here that uh, uh, are there. I, I use the old phrase because I am a child of a whole bunch of folks from the South. I use a lot of weird analogies, but I, I use the phrase around here. You can't swing a dead cat without hitting one of the folks from this family or that family. There's two families and you just can't avoid them. And it's not a bad thing. It's just that they've been here for so long that the family has spread into every other family. Uh, and that's, and those are for the most part, they're the bedrocks of the community. Absolutely. And, and, when, when that works well, it works really well. There's a, there's a stability there. There's mm-hmm. a, uh, a knowledge, like you said, a, a knowing where you came from and who you are uh, in there. And then when it doesn't work well, well, you can't say anything to anybody because it'll get back to whoever it is. Yeah, that's for sure. It's related to each other. Yeah. <laughs> um, I often think it, about that in the classroom that, you know, I don't know who your grandparents are. Yeah, because <laughs> uh, I haven't been at this elementary school that long. I've been in the community for a while, but I haven't learned everybody yet. And it's a, and that's part of uh, the community that I, I just struggle to put everything together. It is after a, 
a couple of connections, my head just stops being able to figure it out. Give me a chart and I might be able to figure it out, but by verbally it's not there. But, and yeah. so I often wonder, you know, and I, that's why, you know, when you're telling a story, it's usually better if you don't know who's, who you're talking to, to just use generic names and not be really specific quite yet. Yes. <laughs> it, it can take a lot of years to, to get all those connections down yes. and, uh, you're just better safe to not um, not do that. But that's, again, like you were saying, though, that this isn't just old history. This isn't just the way it used to be. This is how it still is in a lot of places today. Yeah. Um, and so we can we can look back on this and, and, and we can look at today and we can see the family development that was instituted back then and that developed back then uh, and how it still works even even today. And I, I think to to kind of broaden it from family, and, and we may come back to it just a little bit with the family and the importance of it, and, and really, and I want to come back to the question of what happens when we don't have it, but I think that'll come naturally through looking at it as now there are a lot of towns where there isn't that family connection. There are not, you know, the the uh, the, the bedrock families in an area because either the area is newly developing within the last hundred or two years, or it is an area where there has been a, a uh, an economic flight for whatever reason uh, from that particular area, or just maybe even it's been a spot where uh, something new has come in and it's been flooded with new people. And so there's a, an imbalance. Uh, and I think this plays out in our churches as well in small scale, just like it plays out in the communities but there are some different tendencies to it. Uh, I, I see the, the, in the community I'm in, it is very careful about how it grows. And as a result, the growth rate isn't all that fast, but at the same time, we're not losing people. Uh, and it is a more rural area. And so there are those bedrock families as we talked about. And I think that's something that, you know, having grown up in suburbia, we didn't have that really. There weren't those families that were uh, known to everybody. There weren't the the abilities to know everybody that was in your elementary school and who their parents were. And for the most part, grandparents that didn't exist really in my school. Most of us, our grandparents didn't even live in town with us. They were somewhere else. And so that whole idea of having the family group together changes how you react to things it changes how children are raised to a great degree. You know, my grand, my parents and my wife's parents all live at least an hour and a half's drive. So when we need somebody to watch the kid, it's a little difficult to grab them and have them here to help. My wife grew up with all of her grandparents and great grandparents living in town. And so for them, it was 10 miles. And so when one of the kids is sick and mom and dad still have to go to work, it's easy to have a grandparent right there. They even had a great grandmother that lived in the house with them uh, from when my wife was born until she was a teenager. So there was there was the built in family connection to teach the history and to have that that deep connection. And she has that deep connection, especially with that side of the family. And it's uh, it's enriching. And I think we miss something when we don't have it. I think there are a great many things in our current society that are outflows from losing that sense of generational identity and, and, and even masking it in a lot of ways. And I, I don't want to go into this necessarily as a focus topic in this episode. We might hit it a couple of times, but I think in the rewriting of how generational ancestry and, and geographical ancestry works out um, through say the last 300 years even further than that uh, but how that geographical ancestry has come to mean different things now than it did back then uh, it's telling where the lack of history and understanding of where I come from takes away those roots and it, it rewrites them and I think it's one of the most pernicious things that we deal with in America today is the vast majority of people who have no clue their geographical underpinnings going back three or four generations. Uh, they know like two generations, maybe a third, 
but you get past that, they don't they don't know that family history as well. And I think that's something that that we lose that sense of identity a little bit and that sense of grounding and um, understanding and, and even even to a great degree, a way to relate to one another. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I I grew up. It was a little bit more like your wife's side of the uh, side of the family. Um, both my mom and my dad's side of the family were my mom and dad were both part of large families, and everybody was within about an hour, hour and a half of each other. Most of them much closer. And I remember going over to my my grandparents on my dad's side. The whole family would go over every Saturday. And people would be just be coming and going all day, uh, but everybody would be there. And it was just, it was a family day. Um, we moved out to the West Coast when I was, you know, 10 or 11. Um, and it's been my generation, my cousins and me, that have started to move away from that core center geographically. And it's not that we're not close, uh, and, and a lot of them are still out there and close, but there's not that there's not that anything bringing everybody together that that aspect of it has definitely been lost um, and my and that's one of the reasons I wanted to to try to go into a, a, a rural ministry was because there's a place there's an opportunity to put down roots mm-hmm. be in one place for a long time and let my kids grow up in what we lost you know and and have that that be uh, an aspect of that. Um, so I, I definitely think that's, uh, and, I, and I see us losing that in our, our extended family. Again, not that nobody's close, but that, that, but that we're all far away from each other. Right. And I, wa- I want to provide some of that for my children, what I, what I saw as a child growing up as well. Yeah. My, my dad is one of eight children, and of the eight children and the 24 grandchildren uh, from that, from my grandparents, uh, only one moved back as an adult to that area where my oh, dad wow. grew up. My oldest first cousin went back as a, uh, she was in the work, worked for the state. I can't remember what department and she was placed back in their hometown and the rest of us, um, there is, one that's within an hour's drive, a couple more that are in, they were, they were from the hills of Eastern Kentucky, uh, up in the coal fields. And so, uh, there's one that's, that's kind of in South central Kentucky. There's a cluster in and around central Kentucky around Lexington. And then from there, uh, it spreads out and we are all over the place. And the next generation on is even more so. And I mean, when, when we're geographically to go from, uh, you know, my grandparents who grew up in that County and stayed there until after they were both retired for a ways, uh, they finally moved to Lexington when I was in high school. And from there, that whole family has left that town and every single one of my aunts and uncles at least has a two year degree several of them having that up as far as master's degrees and uh, they they are all very successful in what they've done and their children are largely successful in everything they've done including starting businesses and that kind of thing uh, I'm one of the the lowest paid group because I'm a teacher it's a choice I chose to be a teacher I know what I got it myself into but you know I'm I don't show up on the pay scale compared to some of my cousins but they live in places like Oklahoma City and Chicago and Dallas and you know you go through the list of where they are uh, Cincinnati and St. Petersburg and Jacksonville and you know they're they're in the big city for the most part they they moved away from the country and the next my my aunts and uncles pretty much all moved into suburb areas and now my cousins are either in downtown areas or they're in the suburb areas uh, i'm one of the few that lives in a, in a more rural setting and enjoys being in i enjoy being in the rural setting I, I like it where i am it takes me an hour to get to everything that's in the big city which means i spend less money 
on everything Amen. that's in the big city. <laughs> I go when I <laughs> when I when I really want to spend the money, I go. But unless I really want to go, I don't have to do that. So, yes. uh, and there's a benefit to it. There's drawbacks, but that's a good benefit. Uh, but the the idea of that closeness, you know, we're so far apart that it is difficult. Thank goodness for technology. You know, we're sitting on a phone call across the whole country. And a few moments ago, we were on Skype trying that to see if it would work. And so there's that opportunity to connect and stay connected, but it is harder. It's not as easy as being, uh, you know, being on opposite sides of the same town. Uh, so there's relationship opportunities missed. And, and those relationship opportunities missed, we don't always notice them until later in life. I didn't, I didn't notice that I didn't know my cousins all that well until I was an adult. And I realized that I didn't know my cousins all that well. We'd show up at a wedding or we'd show up at a, a family event. And now I'm sitting across the table from somebody who I'm told is my first cousin, but I don't remember seeing you before. And that's, you know, my dad would not have known that feeling because everybody was right there in town. And, you know, when somebody had a, had a, a need at the, at the house, everybody showed up to take care of it. Uh, and, and that's just how things were done. We talked on the work episode about the, the community barn raising type idea. And that's very much that same idea. Uh, on the other side of my family, I have grandparents. I have one grandmother that uh, her parents both immigrated from Switzerland. And so they came here directly. Uh, my great grandfather and three of his brothers, they all moved together at the same time to North Dakota and became homesteaders in, in nearby areas in North Dakota. And so that family, again, that generation and the next generation were still there. But as we get to the generation after that, then it starts to spread out. And so for them, the spread out started at the, the baby boomer generation, or the, the, sorry, the, the greatest generation, the World War II generation. That's where this spread out started. And then by the time you get to the baby boomer generation, they're all over the place. And that's something that America, because it's so big, encouraged. But I think we lost a lot. We lost a lot in doing that because we do lose that identity. Now our identity is in being an American and that's not all bad. There is a lot that's good about that, but our identities have been able to be used by some folks. Uh, and this is where, you know, it becomes, it, it starts to get into race theory and, and the different things that go with that. But it, because of that lack of connection to the immediate past, especially coming through the baby boomer generation and into generation X, that idea of who you're connected to has been kind of scrubbed away and it's been easier to lump everybody into one group rather than, as I remember, I growing up in Cincinnati, the jokes weren't necessarily white and black. It's German and Irish and Polish and uh, English and Scottish. And the, the jokes were very ethnically based, not yeah. racially based. And that, and there was a lot of, the racially based jokes, but that was a, a subgroup along with all of the others. And that flavor of joking, I have not noticed since I've become an adult. The, the jokes about I'm an Irishman or I'm a Scotsman or, you know, the, the, what I remember was the biggest thing in the eighties was the Polish jokes where I grew up and we had a very large German community. So that doesn't surprise me. I still live in a largely German community and I never hear that type of joking ever. It just doesn't happen. And so that's, that's a good progress, but I think we've traded it for another kind of, of um, misunderstanding each other based on those tribal identities. And we've changed what the meaning of tribe is uh, to an unnecessarily large degree. Yeah, you know, and that's a great point. And it's something I hadn't thought of um, because I haven't heard those jokes in so long. Where I grew up, it was it was Russians. You know, it was, mm -hmm. the, it was America versus Russia. It was yep. the Cold War. So it was the Russians were the, the group. Where my wife grew up uh, in in Minnesota, it was a lot of Swedes and Norwegians. So there was Sven and Ollie jokes, if yes. anybody, you know, gets that. Um, but you don't, you don't hear those anymore. And I think the more generic we've gotten in them, the more it's it's broken down into 
you know, not different ethnicities and nationalities, but more into to race. We've lost the subtleties. We've lost not that those were good jokes to begin with, right? But we've lost the ability to know that there are exceptions to the rules. Yes, become less joking. The jokes have been, and and that the tension that's that's boiling over right now. I think uh, yes, it's certainly a subtext to it. Yeah, and and the. It's interesting as as the DNA technology is getting better and the genetic research is getting better and you see all the folks saying, oh, my, I never knew that I had connections to there. And so now there's this area of the world that they used to look down on that's now home in some sense. It's not home, but there's it's like homeland. And so it's interesting to watch someone's viewpoint on where they came from change once they learn they actually came from there. It's, it's yes. funny to see that occur. And I, and I use funny, like ironic, not as in humorous. It, it is ironic to watch that. And it's, I I've not necessarily dealt with that because of a DNA test, but because of just wrestling with my study in history, knowing who my grandparents were, and knowing what my grandparents told me about previous generations and where they came from. There are, you know, my, my, a lot of my family is from central Kentucky and Eastern Kentucky. And while those weren't, especially Eastern Kentucky was not a slaveholding area. The Scots Irish of the Hills up there are not well known for being friendly to the former slaves. Uh, and it's the least density of, uh, African Americans in Kentucky are in the hills in the east. Uh, as you move further west, that density totally changes because of where slavery uh, existed in Kentucky. There just wasn't a lot of slavery up in the hills, but it also wasn't a, a, a place of shelter and refuge after the Civil War. Uh, it was a place where it wasn't necessarily safe to be. And so understanding that and learning that history and learning the history of the family that I had in central Kentucky and trying to wrestle with the, the, the realities of what those regions were. And then also understanding the family that came over from Switzerland and trying to piece together, why did they come? When did they come? What were some of the economic conditions and just learning in history as those things, as I'm learning that part of history, trying to piece it together on my own, it gives you a much better understanding of who your, who your ancestors were and, and why they made certain decisions and why you end up being where you are. Um, you know, the, there's, there's a lot that goes into someone migrating from one part of the country to another. Sometimes it's like my one grandmother who was just a rather free spirit and, you know, brother-in-law was going off to seminary. So she traveled with her, her sister and her brother-in-law. And when it was time for them to go back, they said, Hey, we're getting ready to leave. She said, I'm not going, I'm staying here. And she went back home maybe 10 times the rest of her life. She even, in announcing that she got married not long after that, uh, she sent a telegram. I'm married. His name is Bill. And that was the, that was the whole telegraph. I'm married. His name is Bill. And, uh, <laughs> you know, nowadays that would be, that would be all, that would be accepted and normal to hear about that kind of thing through a Facebook message, through uh, a, a, a private message on some sort of social media app, you can almost see a college kid moving across the country and you're communicating via Skype or voice message to get that message back and forth. They didn't have that back then. So she said what technology they had a telegraph. And that is, you know, it's kind of funny now that we look back on it. But at that time that was unheard of. It was, it was, it was unusual to do that kind of thing. But then again, Right at her, you know, in her lifetime, she knew the folks that came from Switzerland. That makes a difference. I'm, I'm, sure, I'm sure it was scandalous within the family to to have done it that way. Probably they later in life. My I didn't get to go to the last couple family reunions that she went back to, but uh, apparently the stories were that she was always a pretty free wheeler. <laughs> so, <Yeah. laughs> you know, it, it's and it's interesting because I. I think back on my family history and when we've on my mom's side, especially we've lost a lot of the records and 
from way back when. Mm-hmm. Um, my dad's side, um, it was both of my grandparents' parents came over World War One era. So that was easy. That's easy to trace back, at least until they, you know, not necessarily across the, the, the ocean, but we at least know from when they got here. Right. Um, my mom's side of the family came over much, much earlier. And there was a lot of moving around, a lot of different things. We, we think that there were, you know, cousins on both sides of the Civil War. Um, there's, we know that one of my, I think it's my great, great, great-grandfather went down to Mexico as a U.S. ambassador and, you know, built up a dynasty down there of banks and, and whatnot. And then when Pancho Villa rode through, he scattered out of town real quick and yeah. um, left all his fortune down there. At least that's the family story, you know, and we've been able to find a few facts that, that seem to correlate it, um, uh, cor- uh, corroborate it, but, you know, we we don't see the full story anywhere in history. Right. So we don't know how much of that's actually true. But we know that they were down there. We know that we have uh, Mexican blood in us because of the, the family that grew up down there and then came back. Um, and, and then throughout, like I said, this generation um, of my cousins on, on both sides, are just, they're moving all across the country and um, spreading out. And, and it's just fascinating. It is fascinating to watch. It, yeah. it really is. Well, to, to take this back into a, a biblical frame, think about the just immediately pre-exile Jew who is being steeped in their genealogy, whether they're actively following the, the covenant laws, whether they're one of the, the group that's being judged or whether they're one of the remnant, doesn't really matter. They still are keeping track of all of this. And they still have that connection to back to Abraham. And they have that grounding in, you are a son of Abraham through his son, through his son, through his son. And so much of, you know, this is where your land is. This is the, this is the land you are going to tend because you are the son of and on down the line uh, or even a temple family, you know, one of the, the families that had something to do with the temple, whether it was in uh, sweeping the dwarf posts or whether it was in actually killing the sacrifices, whatever the, the, the role that they had in and around the temple, that was a, a family business in, as it, as we would word it. It was the, it was handed down from father to son. And there was, uh, there was an importance around that and a training and a carefulness about it. Uh, and, and even in, in the more American economy, if we fast forward several generations or, you know, millennia, uh, you, you see that same handing down up to a point. And within the last hundred years, that handing down of father to son uh, in terms of vocation has changed a lot uh, to the point that it's it's rare to see a son follow dad into whatever field they're in. Usually they're going somewhere else into a different field. And that's not all bad. It's not all good. It's just interesting to notice. And there's uh, over the over time, though, there becomes a weight to that that sometimes is overbearing, but it's still a grounding and a weight that that helps bring an identity to you. And so I guess, you know, thinking of it pre-exile versus post-exile, there would be a big even even if you think about the exodus, you know, pre, you know, with Abraham's. Uh, family themselves necessarily being the ones to move to Egypt. And then how many generations later they're coming out and they still have that, that connection all the way back to their tribe. And each tribe has its own identity, its own flavor, its own, um, you know, if you think of it more of in English or European heraldry, they all have their own coats of arms that tell about the family. They all have those unique, unique little things that talk about where you're from and provide that almost a almost a guardrail to the family of what you're living up to and i think that's maybe even part of what we've lost is living up to a legacy there's no legacy to live up to if you don't know your legacy and i think that's one of the crimes of one of the most vicious parts of the crimes of slavery is the complete wiping out of any semblance of location and tribe and ancestry you know it's just it's it's just sliced off and absolutely 
And it's, it's one of the most vicious parts of that, that, you know, you, you, your, your grounding and your history, the memorial stones that your family has built up of look at what we've come through are no longer there. You know, the, the, the sense of loss to Israel as they come back from exile and so many of the memorial stones have been knocked down and aren't there anymore. There's the ones that they say, and this is still there to this day, but there's others they mentioned that are not still there to that day and have been destroyed. And you think about the loss of the temple and the grounding that provided. And, you know, those kinds of things are what has happened to a large part of our population. And it was done in just a nefarious way with cruel intentions. I mean, the intention was to erase the country of origin, to erase the tribal communication. And the, in studying jazz and the idiom of jazz and how it developed in the gospel music, uh, the, the, the old spiritual style is more what I'm sp- speaking of here, the, the, the original spirituals. Those were a blending of African cultures rather than unique African voices from their own individual small culture speaking. It was, it was a blending of all of that because of the way that slavery worked. Now, part of what has come from that is beautiful, but the reality of what caused it is heartbreaking to see, you know, I, I have such fondness of hearing about my grandparents and, and, you know, even though there's things that we wish weren't in the background, there's still not things to hang your head about necessarily just acknowledge and move on. But at least, you know, something there's, there's entire families that know nothing past great grandmother because everything's been erased. Well, and, and not only the, the heritage, the legacy, the, the country of origin, but they split the families up once they got here too. Yes. Just, so there wasn't even the ability to, what you started with here to continue on yeah, uh, and, and build from that. It was, everything was broken down to, it was, it was raised. You know, the, like they say with, like with the temple, no st- stone was left on top of another. Yeah. It, the, everything had to start from nothing. And, and you had to, people, people are used to being able to build on a foundation. And when you have no foundation to build on, what happens? Well, and to see the cultural landmarks that those generations produced, uh, as especially as slavery was coming to its end and what comes in the first several generations after. You know, when you, you think about within, uh, what is it, within 70 years, uh, 60 years, sorry, within 60 years of the end of the Civil War, you have the Harlem Renaissance. And... Mm-hmm. African-American culture being at an absolute peak in a lot of ways, the art that was coming out of African-American culture in the Harlem Renaissance was superior to that. That was coming out of the more European uh, styles at the time. You know, you, you see the things that are coming out of jazz and you compare that to what's coming out of, um, you know, the, the more European influenced, orchestral music and there's just a wide difference in energy level and creativity and and part of that is results of world war one and the the just depression that that threw all of europe into um but there's still so much more to that uh in in seeing what happened to the african-americans here and the 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 cultural destruction that happened it's not a whole lot in fact it's quite similar to the cultural destruction that happened even through world war one especially in france and the low countries you know where where you know entire stretches of the country for you know 20 miles across the whole country pretty much turned into a giant mud pit there was a lot lost there and it took a long time for that to be able to uh, produce a healthy culture you, know, you 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 look at the media that's produced, and the artworks that are produced in the interbellum period in twentieth century interbellum period in Europe, and there's it's it's depressing. It is sad. It is it's it's you know it's PTSD on paper and in in music and with with um, oils and and on canvas. It's just not it's health working its way out, 
but it, it expressed itself in a much more uh, internally focused and dangerous way. Uh, you, you see the same thing, the, the same PTSD type things showing in the African-American artifacts that come through the late 19th century and into the early 20th. But you see a, there's, there's a difference in the two. There's an optimism about the, the through the blues in, in through jazz and through the uh, other cultural artifacts we have. There is a recognition of the sorrow, but there is a joy looking forward that is unique. And I think a lot of that is because there was the grounding in the church that Europe didn't have in the 1920s um, to a large degree. And I, I think that makes a very big difference. But I think some of it is just the nature of having gone through it together. Whereas in Europe, they came to it very, the modern use of the term would be that they came to it balkanized and they came out of it even more balkanized and, and segmented into their groupings. Whereas through slavery, there was, there was a, a compressing of that whole group into a larger group. And that's also one of the pernicious parts about slavery was was erasing those distinctions, and and I, and we're seeing that happen in all of American culture now, throughout the different races. And we talked about that earlier, how race theory is just messing with that, and that has its roots all the way back in pre Civil War. Uh, there's just so much of of our identities are tied to those that history and understanding who we are and where we came from and and understanding the art that led to where we are that that there's just that the lack of knowledge there that hurts uh and it's one of the things you know you think about it why ecclesiastes is written is solomon saying hey here is the here's the wisdom that i've gained you need to learn from this and handing it to his sons and then you see how quickly they forgot all of the things that he said in Ecclesiastes and how many generations is it before it's really yucky in Israel really fast after Solomon and really to a degree, even under him at, at some times, but that wisdom was on paper, wasn't in their heads and it didn't take long before it was nearly entirely forgotten. You know what you think about Josiah's reformation and everything was gone. I mean, they weren't doing the Passover anymore they were, I looks like not really dealing with the Sabbath anymore. They're not doing the other festivals. They're not paying attention to the law. They're not, <laughs> they're totally ignoring the whole system. They've, they've put away the things that God gave to them and the wisdom that had been given to them through the patriarchs and they pay the price for it. And then the next generation recovered so much of that in a variety of different ways but still didn't manage to, to pass it down. And I think that that passing down is, is a key part of it. And I think maybe that's part of where I see it pivot into church culture is the passing down. And we see so many old, uh, I've, I follow Mark Clifton on Facebook and Twitter, and he, he's very big in the revitalization and, and church replanting. And he does a weekly podcast from a church somewhere most of the time on Mondays and he's all over the place. And there, there's these beautiful old buildings that he goes to visit that, and some of them are newer, but some of them are just the bedrock churches of a community that are now down to just shells of themselves. You know, literally the building is the shell and what's left of the church is minuscule. And, yeah. um, you know, the, that failure to hand down and the loss of that identity is sometimes just, deadly to an organization whether it's the church or anything else and as we as we handle uh you know there's the, the all the talk of of reformation and reformed lately and the re recovering some of those ideas and i'm sure there will be the next generation will will react to that and and it will swing a different direction in terms of what's the big big noise of the day but there's a as we recover one thing we start to take away and put away the things that were uh, more immediately and also even some things that were longer in the past. And there's definite loss when we do that. And it affects how we relate to each other, even within that organization yet today. You know, I, I, I have seen firsthand um, part of what you talked about with those, those beautiful church buildings and, and, 
that that could and should and were beacons um, where they were built and and in the towns that they're in, and them being a shell of themselves. Um, but I see it not only as things not being handed down, but at the same time, the things that are handed down, the refusal to build on those and wanting to go back to the way they had been without any growth, without any change, without any take the wisdom. Okay, I have the wisdom, like you said with Ecclesiastes. Solomon gave us the wisdom. It's one thing to read the wisdom and to know the words that he wrote, but then to do something with them. Right. And and, and I think that's oftentimes partnered with the refusal to um, to hand a history and a legacy down from one, for lack of a better term, from one generation to the next. Right. But there's also what the things that are handed down. Okay, now let's stick that in a book and put it on the shelf. Yeah. Do we hear you it and, and do we retain it and do we understand it and do we use it? Right. And that's something and, that and, as you look at the native tribes uh, in America as in the native civilizations, really, as Europeans got, got here, those tribes and civilizations were experts at handing down verbally. Um, very few of them had written language, and, and yet they're handing down their culture verbally, generation after generations. And, uh, you know, you, you look at the ancient peoples in Europe as well, for a, to a large degree, uh, before the, the conquests of, of, you know, Greece and Rome and the Holy Roman Empire and those kinds of things that, that were flattening agents. Uh, and the consolidation of the different countries that we now have in Europe, where they're, they're again, they're flattening agents. Uh, we're going through that similarly in America now, and I think uh, worldwide even to a degree, where it's almost like the, the new generation just doesn't want to hear it. And they, they, they don't, they're done with the past. We're, we're moving beyond that. We're, we're sick of that. We're done. We're moving to something better because you guys don't know what you're doing. And, I, and some of it is certainly the lack of a generation handing something down. And I think some of it's the next generation picking it up. Uh, and I see the breakdown in my own experience. Um, I see that, that a lot of times the picking up of the tradition comes through hard times. Um, if you think about the cultural things that were picked up and that were added to uh, the American uh, ethos through the Great Depression, through World War II, and through the post-war period as things were put back together after the war. Uh, you know, you think about the great names in, and I, I used to do this exercise with my middle schoolers. I'd say, all right, name all the great baseball players that you can think of. And, you know, you'd get Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig. And then I'd go through and, and we'd hit the the great basketball players that we know about. And with the caveat of nothing less than or nothing within 20 years of where we are now. So everything had to be more than 20 years old. And I'm talking to middle schoolers. Right. Uh, so this is way before they're born. So we're, we're relying on cultural knowledge at this point. And and we we would talk about, OK, what are the great movies? And you'd go back and, and what I would do is I would show them that in in basic terms of when those things were happening and it's interesting to me that so much of american culture is the 1920s the 1940s and the 1950s those three decades determined so much of american culture and and that i had when i was growing up and then as we take from there and we look to now my son's generation they're going to mostly remember the 1980s and the 2000s because there are times when we're coming out of a stress period and into a period of relative calm-ish, <laughs> relative calm-ish, uh, and, and there are times when we are not fighting things and so culture has its opportunity to grow. And, it, you know, after World War One, you had the 1920s. After the Great Depression, you had the the and the post-war era. You, after the war, you had the post-war era. So, you know, in baseball, it's, you know, you hear about the 26 Yankees, 27 Yankees. Why? Because it's right before the Great Depression. And when the Great Depression hit, those cultural landmarks were not as pronounced. Um, and so, you know, from 
the roots of that struggle. We had some cultural gain, but at the same time, that was because they were picking up and recreating things. Well, then what happens next? Well, the 50s, they're looking back. And so they start to pick up some of those cultural icons again and maintain them. And that's that's the, the chain we start to see over time is is picking up those icons and picking up those memories and, and finding those little places where the memorial stones were put and saying, hey, see this one that's still standing? That used to mean this. And unfortunately, I think we're in a generation, a couple of generations in a row, really, uh, the baby boomers were really bad about it. They did not want to pick up the cultural icons of their parents at all. They wanted to let them go. Uh, and then we get to uh, Generation X, who really was ambivalent about the whole idea. Uh, and as they got older, they started to pick up those memorial stones and look back at them and hold on to them. And then you get to the bridge generation that I'm in, and most of my generation doesn't really care about that stuff. Um, they're they're piecing together larger pieces of the puzzle than for it to a great degree uh, than just what was brought in one generation. But then you come into this next generation, uh, and the the young adults that that are what thirty five and younger, they are not really looking back beyond World War II. That's kind of their end point. Nineteen hundred is is for them ancient history. Uh, they're not looking any further than that. And because of that, there's a lot of, of cultural landmarks that they're not picking up and that are just obliterated. And with that, you get a lot of, um, I guess the term is turbulence, is probably more than anything else because they're grabbing at different different types of memorial stones than the previous generations were because the 1920s were such a mess and the 19-teens were such a mess. And that's the, the heart of the the cultural look back that we have you know you you hear the the music that cycles every couple of years to, to look back at back at a particular decade uh, with history and with politics we do the same basic thing you end up going back to particular periods and it's a reaction to that well what reacted that the first time that's usually what reacts to it the second time uh, and that's kind of where we are right now is that we're 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 setting down and we're destroying the, the memorial stones that have been left. You know, and I see a, I don't know if it's a big group or a little group in, in the, the more recent generations. Once they realize that there are things to, there are memorial stones to pick up, uh, to use that, that terminology, they end up just grabbing at whatever they can grab at. Yes. Um, and whatever it is, good, bad, and different, related to them or not, you know, um, applicable to them or not, they just grab at whatever is there, um, because they don't have that 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 identity, that foundation being passed down. And I think of the the back and forth that you mentioned. Um, we you know with each generation, I think back to the the period of the kings in Israel, and so many. It's like okay, one good king, one bad king, one good yep. king, one bad king. You know, um, just that that idea of they they continually are rediscovering. Uh, God and their and, the, and the, the writings and the law and all that and then they keep pushing it aside and yep. the the cycle that they go through even back in, in judges you know uh, all the way through and then up through the New Testament how many times we are told remember mm-hmm. don't forget I'm teaching you what I already taught you yeah um, I, all of that is just continually re- re- repeated over and over and um, there's a there's a I think a human tendency to want those memorial stones, but after enough generations, there's a lack of knowledge on which ones to grab and why it matters. That's the end of part one of our conversation about man being created for community. Part two will come next week. Thank you for listening to Simmering Thoughts. If you've not already done so, please go subscribe to Simmering Thoughts at your favorite podcast catcher. Join the conversation by joining our discussion group on Facebook at Simmer Thoughts. You can also find us on Instagram and on Twitter at the same handle at Simmer Thoughts. You can send an email to SimmeringThoughts at gmail.com and you can follow me on Twitter at BandmanAcres. Thanks again for listening to Simmering Thoughts and we pray that you have a great week in the Lord.